popular gospel in the first century. And that makes a lot of sense if Jews were the target audience. So with those brief comments in mind, I'd like us to begin our survey of Matthew. And the outline that I use tonight, this will be the outline that I use for every book. So this is going to be our pattern. So firstly, if you see the composer that asked the question, who wrote the book? I did try to alliterate this uh, as well. So if one of them seems a bit of a stretch, please forgive me. Uh, The composer. You know, the four gospel writers uh, do not identify themselves in their writings. They're not like the later epistles. If we look at a lot of the epistles, it will start, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's identifying who's the writer. But we don't see that in the gospels. So what we need to do, we need to rely on external evidences, okay, that that's evidence that's found throughout church history, and also consider some internal evidence. Okay, and what that means is, okay, is what's written in the book, is it consistent with who we propose to be the composer? Okay, so let's have a look at some external evidences. You'll notice uh, in our Bibles, I'm pretty sure everyone's Bible here would have this. It's called the superscription. It's at the start. My Bible says the gospel according to St. Matthew. Yours probably says the gospel according to Matthew. Now, this particular title, it's not inspired. So it wasn't in the original manuscript. But it's interesting that this superscription is found in all the known manuscripts of the gospel of Matthew. So at one point it was inserted by a scribe and it has remained, which indicates that it was widely accepted. You know, when we consult uh, the early church, okay, when we look at the church fathers, there is clear and consistent support for the authorship of Matthew. In fact, there's one famous comment by a gentleman named Papias, and he was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Baptist. So it's quite early on probably around 120 AD. And he says that Matthew wrote this gospel. And this was accepted by the early church. And this is the clear testimony of other church fathers. Okay, so here's a a couple of quotes. It says, As I learn by tradition concerning the four gospels, which alone are received without dispute by the church of God under heaven. Okay, that's actually a really important phrase. Okay, four gospels are accepted in the canon. The first was written by St. Matthew, once a tax gatherer, afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ who published it for the benefit of the Jewish converts. Then another church father said, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. So church history tells us that Matthew is the author, and it's actually quite undisputed. It's not until we get kind of modern textual criticism that there becomes a few different opinions. Now, a further external evidence is this, and I thought this was interesting. Matthew is quite an obscure apostle. We don't know much about him. So it would seem strange for tradition to ascribe the book to him if, in fact, he had not written it. If you were trying to claim that your book is apostolic, you would probably use a name like Peter, James, or John, someone more 
famous. Okay, so that's the external evidence. Now, there's also some internal evidence that harmonizes with this view. Now, to understand this, we need just a brief snapshot of Matthew. Okay, Matthew was one of the disciples. Okay, he's one of the 12. He's also known as Levi, and he was previously a tax collector. Can you remember, tax collectors were despised by the Jews. Okay, but outside of this, we know very little about the man. Okay, we do see his name in Acts chapter 1. Okay, he's, he's amongst the disciples that had gathered after the Lord ascended. But with that in mind, let's consider some internal evidence. Okay, so number one, there are numerous references to money in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, nine different words are used for money, and three of those words are not found anywhere else in Scripture. Now, what profession would have an understanding of money like that? Okay, that makes sense with a tax collector. Second internal evidence. Okay, both Mark and Luke okay, use his surname Levi as well as the apostolic name. Okay, so there would be Matthew, Levi. We see this in Mark 2.14 and Luke 5.27. But it's interesting that Matthew does not include this double identification. Okay, and how would we explain that? Well, it's probably because his readers already know who he is. Number three, he's the only one of the gospel writers who include the account of the payment of the temple tax. Now, again, who would have an interest in temple taxes? Probably someone who was an ex-publican. Number four, in accord with his experience at keeping records, he recorded the long discourses of Jesus. Okay, Matthew does this uniquely. Can we see this in Matthew 5 to 7? That's the Sermon on the Mount. We see lengthy discourses in chapter 10, 13, and then 23 through to 25. And the skillful organization of this gospel agrees with his abilities as a tax collector. And then number five, as an apostle, he had direct access to words, events, and supernatural guidance. Okay, John 14, 26, and 16, 13. So when we weigh the evidence, it seems that Matthew, the apostle, is the author of the book that bears his name. Point number two, I've called chronology. When was it written? When this book was written and where it was written from are not easy to determine, okay, but there are some clues for us within the book. Now, it was written after the life and ministry of Jesus, okay, as were all the New Testament books. Matthew uses this little phrase a few times in his book, until this day, okay, which implies after the events that he's recorded. Now, since this was written to the Jews, normally scholars believe it was written after the first dispersion of the Jewish Christians. That's recorded for us in Acts chapter 8. But it needed to be written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay? And that, that's the key date. And that's because Matthew references this as something still future. Okay? We see that in Matthew chapter 24. And also throughout the book... He references the city of Jerusalem okay, numerous times. And also, if he was writing to Jews, okay, which he is, if something as significant as the destruction of Jerusalem had already occurred, surely it would be mentioned in this book. Now, it's interesting that 
the early church okay, said that Matthew wrote first. Okay? He was the first gospel that was written. Now, a lot of scholars today claim that it's Mark. Uh, I would tend to side with the early church. Okay? They were closest okay, to the event. They should be in a better position to know. Now, since we have some ideas of the other Gospels, and if Matthew's written first, it's likely okay, that Matthew wrote between AD 50 to 55. Okay, and that's the blank in the slide, okay, AD 50 to 55. Now, from where he wrote is also hard to determine. There's usually two suggestions. He either wrote from Jerusalem or he wrote from Antioch in Syria. There was a large population of Jews in that city. Point number three is the congregation. To whom did he write? Now, it's very evident that Matthew wrote to the Jews primarily. Okay, that's very important when it comes to understanding this book. Now, this doesn't mean that the Gentiles are not in focus at all. Okay, think of how the book concludes. Okay, that's the Great Commission. That is for everybody. But Matthew had a primary audience in mind. Now, it makes perfect sense that one of the Gospels would be devoted to the Jews. Okay? The Jews were the first to hear the Gospel spoken. Okay? They were there at Pentecost. So to have something written that answers the questions that they have in their mind is very logical. Now, from the very first verse in Matthew, we see a Jewish emphasis this is what we read at the start. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, that would not be the way to start a book if you were writing to the Greeks or the Romans. Okay, they couldn't care less about Jewish history. Okay, and this is all about proving that Jesus came from the line of David and Abraham. Okay, again, that's a Jewish concern. Now, Matthew also spends a lot of time okay, focusing on things that the Jews were concerned about. Okay, he focuses on Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, that, that's a big thing for the Jews. It contains more of Jesus' teaching than any other Gospels. And a key term throughout Matthew is kingdom, okay, or the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Jesus being the king. Again, that, that's a very Jewish concept. So he seems to address a lot of things that were at the forefront of the Jewish mind. So the internal evidence is quite clear that this was intended for a Jewish audience. But where was this first sent? Okay, where was it first read? Okay, well, that we cannot be certain. Okay, we know it was written to the Jews, but where were those Jews located? And there are numerous suggestions for that. You know, some believe that Matthew wrote uh, his gospel for Jewish believers in Palestine, Whereas others believe Matthew wrote to Greek-speaking Jewish converts in other areas, perhaps a place like Antioch in Syria. But it is impossible to be certain okay, to whom he wrote, okay, as in where they located, but it is very clear that Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. Okay? Matthew answers Jewish questions okay? and could well function as something to strengthen Jewish converts in the faith. But it could also be used as an apologetic to witness to Jews still practicing Judaism. So that's the third point. The fourth is what I've called content. What is it all about? Okay, Matthew is about 
proving that Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the one to whom the Old Testament scriptures speak and point to. So this first gospel, it's all about proving that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah. It's about proving that he is the king. Okay, this is the unique perspective of Matthew, okay, demonstrating that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he starts his whole book by showing that Jesus has the right ancestry to be king. He's of the Davidic line. And then he shows okay, again and again throughout the book that Jesus is the king. He is Messiah. How does he prove that? Because Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scripture. And then Matthew also focuses on the people's response to Jesus as king, which unfortunately was primarily rejection. Now, Norman Geisler, okay, who will be the, the textbook that we're using, okay, he offers this helpful summary to help us understand the content of the book. He says the theme of the book, Christ is the king of the Jews. Uh, the key verse is, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Chapter 21 and verse 5. And then he has some key words and phrases. I do just want to issue a, a caution here. Uh, to my understanding, he doesn't use the King James. Yeah? And I did change some of the words, but I haven't checked every single number there. So there could be a slight difference. Okay, but nevertheless, the key words and phrase, end of the world, occurs five times. Okay, Father is 44 times. Kingdom is 23 times. Kingdom of heaven is 32. Righteous is 17. Righteousness is 7. Son of David, again, very Jewish term, 10 times. That it might be fulfilled, 15 times. And then which was spoken, okay, that means in the Old Testament, 20 times. And worship is 14 times. And what I want to point out from these key words and phrases is that Matthew repeatedly stressed that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Okay, this is what he does over and over again. This was a key strategy. And again, that makes sense because he's writing to the Jews. The Jews regarded the Old Testament as the Scriptures. So he uses the Old Testament with the goal of convincing them that Jesus is the King, that he is Messiah. Now, if you like to underline your Bible, okay, in the book of Matthew, there's a couple of phrases that are good to underline. The first is that it might be fulfilled. Okay, so when we see that, it's good to underline. And the second phrase is which was spoken. Okay, these are two key phrases. Now, here are some of the references for which was spoken. I think they're in your notes. Uh, it's chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 17, chapter 12, verse 17, chapter 13, verse 35, chapter 21, verse 4, chapter 22, verse 31, chapter 27, verse 9, and chapter 27, verse 35. Okay, so that's the phrase which was spoken. Okay, again, references back to the Old Testament. Now, what I'd like to do is have a look at where Matthew uses this word fulfilled, okay, that it might be fulfilled okay this word fulfilled means to accomplish or to make full or to complete okay and jesus sorry matthew speaks of jesus as the fulfillment at least 15 times okay so let's have a look at these so i'll put them up on the, the screen for you so the first is matthew chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 
And again, if you like to underline, you can underline this in your Bible. It says, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Okay, so this is all a fulfillment of prophecy. The next one, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. And there was until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Okay, so here you've got the wickedness of Herod. He's going to kill all the little boys, so, so they flee. That's all fulfilling prophecy. Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, okay, Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. Okay, that's speaking of the atrocious things that Herod did. Okay, again, that was predicted. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Again, okay, this is showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Matthew chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Then Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, okay, this is a wonderful verse, it's like all-encompassing. It says, for verily I say unto you, to heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Okay, the jot and the tittle is a very small mark in the Hebrew language. And Jesus is saying, even the smallest thing, okay, it's going to be fulfilled. He is the fulfillment of it. And Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17, it says, That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Okay, so again, this is tying together Jesus with the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Matthew 13 and verse 14. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Okay, that's reoccurring, isn't it? Which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. Matthew 13, verse 35, That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, and this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. Okay, that's all about the triumphant entry of Jesus. Again, this is all prophesied in the Old Testament. Matthew 26, verse 54. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Matthew 26, 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
Matthew 27 and verse 9, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. Of course, that's speaking about Judas and his betrayal. And then Matthew 27, verse 35, And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. So Matthew is very determined to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Okay? He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? Jesus is the one spoken about in the Old Testament. Okay? And more than any other gospel, okay, Matthew connects to the Old Testament. So here are a couple of summary statements about the content of Matthew. Okay, so number one. Matthew presents Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Matthew develops his theme of Jesus as King from the very beginning of his gospel. He shows that Jesus has the right ancestry to be King because he comes from the royal line of King David. Matthew reaches back again and again into the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And then the second summary statement is this. Matthew records the presentation to Israel of the king and the offer of his kingdom to them. He reveals that Israel rejected her king and his kingdom in spite of the words and works that verified his claims. And even though that generation of Israelites rejected its king, Matthew shows his readers that the king will return one day to rule in great power and glory. Okay, so that is what Matthew is all about. Jesus of Nazareth is the king. He is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. So let's now move on to our next point, which I've called contributions. Okay, so what does this book contribute? You know, each book of the Bible has its own uh, unique features and contributions to the Bible as a whole. And this is certainly true and evident in the Gospels. So here are some things about Matthew that are unique to Matthew that will help us to understand this gospel a little more. Okay, so number one, Matthew is the only gospel to mention the word church. Okay, Matthew is the only gospel to mention the word church. Uh, you won't find it in the other three gospels, and it occurs in two verses in Matthew. They're both spoken by Jesus. Okay, one of them is very famous, and that's Matthew 16, 18 says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, it's a wonderful verse. It's up there with the most probably misunderstood verses. Um, and then we have Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17. And this is in the context of what do we do when someone offends us in the church? And it says, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church... Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Number two, okay, the parables that are unique to Matthew. Uh, Matthew has a significant number of parables. Uh, there are over 40 uh, in his gospel. And there are quite a lot of unique parables in this gospel. Okay, that meaning we don't find it in the other three. 
And a lot of them are found in Matthew chapter 13, which is a very famous chapter all about kingdom parables. Now, here are some of the unique parables we find in Matthew. There's the parable of the tares. Okay, that's found in Matthew 13. There's the hidden treasure also in Matthew 13, as is the pearl and the dragnet. Okay, so they are all unique to the Gospel of Matthew. Then there's the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, the laborers in the vineyard in chapter 20, the two sons in chapter 21. That's not the prodigal. Okay, that's a, this is a different parable. There's the marriage of the king's son in chapter 22, the ten virgins in chapter 25, and the ten talents. Okay, and those two okay, are in chapter 24 and 25, okay, which means that's in Jesus' teaching on end times. Number three is the unique miracles to Matthew. Now, in his gospel, Matthew uses miracles to prove the messianic power of Jesus. He doesn't just report them because it fits the narrative, but it's for this particular reason, to prove that Jesus is Messiah. And there are at least three unique miracles recorded in the gospel of Matthew. There's the miracle of the two blind men that's recorded in Chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. There's the healing of the dumb demonic. That's also in chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. And then there's the coin in the fish's mouth in chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. And again, it's interesting that it's the Gospel of Matthew that has that account. It's to do with tax. It's to do with money. Again, that is evidence that Matthew was the writer. The fourth thing is the teaching sections. Okay, something that Matthew does is he records at length the teaching of Jesus. Okay, this particular gospel contains far more of Jesus' preaching and teaching compared to any other gospel. It's actually estimated that three-fifths of this gospel is made up of Jesus' teaching. Now, there are two okay, main sections of teaching, or the two most famous sections of teaching in this book the first is what's called the sermon on the mount and that's recorded in chapters 5 6 and 7 and then there's what's called the olivet discourse and this is basically jesus course on things to come okay this is him explaining eschatology and that's recorded in chapters 24 and 25 and although other gospel accounts contain snippets of these sermons the lengthy discourses are unique to the book of Matthew. Now, what's interesting in the book of Matthew, there's five teaching sections that all conclude in a very similar way. That's not, that's not that one. I was meant to have this on a slide, okay? But there are five verses. So let, let's look them up. So let's go Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. Okay, so that's the type of phrase we're after. Then if we go to Matthew chapter 11, and verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples. Okay, so an end of commanding. Matthew 13. And verse 53. 
says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables. So again, that's the same phraseology. Matthew 19 and verse 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings. Okay, so finished these sayings. And then Matthew 26, verse 1. It says, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Okay, so these five teaching sections, they all finish in a very similar way. And it's interesting that number two, three, four, and five use the, the same Greek word. Okay, the first one uses a different word. But one writer makes a very interesting observation. And he he says this. He says, The fivefold structure of these discourses suggests that for the benefit of a Jewish audience, Matthew is portraying Jesus as a new and greater Moses. Like Moses, Jesus speaks part of his law from a mountain. The number of his discourses corresponds to the books of Moses called the Pentateuch, because they are five in number, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this writer makes that particular connection uh, in Matthew, which is an interesting point. Now, the next thing we see, Matthew, he appeals to the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew appeals to the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. And there is disagreement of the exact amount. One author says there are 129 citations from the Old Testament, from 25 books. Another writer said there are 53 direct quotations and 76 allusions to Old Testament language. And the majority of these quotes and allusions come from the mouth of Jesus. Okay, so the Gospel of Matthew is dripping with Old Testament references. Next thing is unique events. Okay, there are a number of events that are only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, we won't find them elsewhere. And here is some of them. Okay, we have the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1. We have the vision of Joseph also in chapter 1. Uh, the story of the wise men in chapter 2. We're very glad we, we have that from Matthew. Uh, the slaughter of the babies of Bethlehem in chapter 2. The taking of of the baby Jesus to Egypt, also recorded in chapter 2. Uh, Peter's experience of walking on the water in chapter 14. Then we have Christ's reply to Peter's confession in chapter 16. That was the verse we read before. Okay, on this rock I'll build this church. Then we have events related to Judas Iscariot in uh, chapter 26 and 27. We have the dream of Pilate's wife in chapter 27. There's some events connected with the resurrection in chapter 27. Uh, The women's watch at the tomb, chapter 27. The bribing of the soldiers at the tomb in chapter 28. And Christ's appearance to the women in chapter 28. Okay, so these are some events that are only found in the Gospel of Matthew. And then there's also Matthew includes the Trinitarian baptismal formula. Matthew concludes his Gospel with what is known as the Great commission and within it we have the trinitarian formula of baptism okay verse 19 of 28 says go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost okay and that is a very important declaration and we find it here in this gospel okay so there are some unique 
contributions of Matthew. Let's now move on to point number six, and that's the concern of this gospel. Okay, why did he write? Now, I've already hinted at this throughout the study, but I want this to be a separate point for emphasis. I think it's important for us to understand okay, the purpose behind the writing. Okay, I want to keep this very short, so I've just got three um, quotes to encapsulate the purpose of this gospel. So, quote number one. Now, Matthew recorded selected events from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in order to confirm to a Jewish audience that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and to explain God's kingdom program for the present age in light of Israel's rejection of her king. Okay, so that's one summary of the purpose. Quote two. The main purpose of Matthew in writing this account was to show Jesus as king of the promised kingdom. He sought to connect the memories of his readers with their hopes to show that the Lord of the Christian was the Messiah of the Jew, the king of the promised kingdom. And then number three, the purposes of the book of Matthew are manifest in several factors. Number one, it aimed to present Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as an apologetic to unbelieving Jews. Okay, so this book could be used as a witnessing tool to the Jews. It's a good thing for us to keep in mind. Number two, it was geared to provide the teaching content of Christ's ministry for use in the church, as evidenced by the long discourses of Jesus. Okay, we have a lot of Jesus' teaching recorded in Matthew. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount, very rich teaching. And then number three, it also provided hope in view of the impending judgment that the king would soon return and set up his kingdom. Remember in AD 70, Jerusalem's going to be wiped out. Okay, but the Gospel of Matthew provides some hope in light of those pending events. So this gives us an idea of why Matthew wrote the gospel. So let's now transition to our final point, okay, which I've called composition. So how is the book structured or outlined? Now, there are a couple of different ways that one can look at the structure of Matthew. If you remember, previously we looked at five sermon endings. Okay, so there's five sermons in the book, and some view that as the best way to structure the book. So you've got a introduction, then you've got sermon one, two, three, four, five, and then there's the conclusion. Okay, so that's one way to view the structure. Then there's what's called a broader view of the structure of the book. And it takes Matthew 5.17 and Matthew 16.21, which we'll read in a moment, as the two key turning points of Jesus' ministry. And we could argue that both Mark and Luke have a very similar structure okay there are these two pivotal moments in jesus ministry and both of these moments in matthew they use very similar phraseology which seems to convey a connection so here, here are the two verses so matthew 4 17 says from that time okay that's a key phrase jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so this is like the commencement of the public preaching ministry of Jesus. Okay, so that's one key point. And then we see in Matthew 16, verse 21, again, from that time, okay, same phrase, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and be raised again the third day. So having been rejected, Jesus now has a shift in focus. His goal now is to prepare the disciples for his departure and his eyes are firmly fixed on the cross. So if we were to put this together, the first of these two passages, it indicates the rise of Jesus' preaching career and that brought him into public prominence. But then the second passage marks the beginning of the decline of his popularity and points toward the culmination of his ministry, which is the cross. And these two moments mark two defining aspects of Christ's ministry, and they form an important structural component of the Gospels. So now what I'd like to do, I want to give you uh, an outline of the book of Matthew. Now what I've done, if you have a look uh, in your chart, um, it should be on your final page in your notes, I'll put it on the screen as well, but it's very small because I've tried to fit it on, on one. And what I've done, there's three different outlines that I have given you there. And that helps us to see how the book is structured. So it reveals that the units within the whole units of the book of Matthew. Now, I want you to notice that the three outlines, okay, ignore the one on the, on the far right. I'll explain that in a minute. The three outlines, they all have the theme of king. And there are some other similarities and some different points emphasized. Now, what I've done, the one on the far right, I've kind of taken all three, picked what I think are the best elements of them and combined it into one outline of this book. And I'd like to work through that with you. So on the far right, you'll see there's 11 points. Okay, so number one is the person of the king. And that's in from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 3, verse 12. And under that, we see his ancestry, the advance, and the ambassador. The second is the preparation of the king. So this is the next big phase in Matthew's gospel. And that's from chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 11. And that includes his baptism and his temptation. Then we see the proclamation of the king. And that includes his ministry and then his manifesto, which is his sermon on the mount. And then we have the power of the king, from chapter 8, verse 1, through to chapter 11, verse 1. And this is all about Jesus proving that he's Messiah. And here we see that he has authority over disease, over nature, over demons. He has the authority to forgive sin. He has authority over the will of man, authority over death, authority over blindness and dumbness, authority to delegate authority. Okay, so that's all about proving that Jesus is the king. Number five, we see people's problem with the king. And this is something that Matthew emphasizes, the rejection of King Jesus. We see the doubts of John the Baptist. We see opposition of the cities, opposition of the Pharisees. And then we see judgment on the opposers. Uh, The sixth category is the parables of the king. That is chapter 13, and that contains a lot of parables unique to Matthew, and they're often referred to as the kingdom parables. Uh, Number seven is the preparation of the disciples by the king. Okay, so once Jesus had been rejected, he goes about preparing his disciples for his departure. We see the reassurance of the disciples, the prediction of the church, the first announcement of his death, his transfiguration, the second announcement of his death, teachings on offenses, humility, and forgiveness, and then the third announcement of his death. 
Number eight, we have the presentation and rejection of the king. So this includes his presentation, so that's the triumphant entry. Then we have the rejection of Christ by the nation, and then the rejection of the nation by Christ in chapter 23. Uh, the ninth category is the prophecy of the king. This is recorded in chapter 24 and uh, 25. So that's important to remember. Okay, That is all about uh, things to come, and we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, number 10 is the passion of the king. And the way that this has been structured is eating the Passover, rejecting the Passover lamb, and sacrificing the Passover lamb. And then number 11, we see the power of the king in chapter 28. Obviously, the greatest demonstration of the king's power is the resurrection. And then we see the king's requirements, which is the great commission. So I hope that helps you to see how uh, the Gospel of Matthew all fits together. And how I'd like to close, and I'll probably close every case study with this, it's the big idea of Matthew. Okay, what's the big idea? What's it all about? When we think of Matthew, it's this that should come to mind. And if this is all you remember, I will be happy. Okay, so the big idea of Matthew, it is about the king and his kingdom. It demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the one promised in the Old Testament. So when we think of Matthew, that's what we need to think about. And for those doing college, that will be in the quiz next week. Okay, it's about the king and his kingdom. It demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the one promised in the Old Testament. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we can spend some time uh, endeavoring to understand uh, the gospel of Matthew uh, in more detail. And uh, we do thank you for what it unpacks. Uh, about our Lord Jesus Christ and I thank you for the confidence that we can have that he is uh, the Messiah Uh, he is the King of the Jews and he is uh, the Savior of the world Uh, this is the foundation of our faith and uh, the the Gospel of Matthew certainly uh, increases uh, our confidence uh, in this father please keep us safe as we travel home until we meet again we pray this in Jesus name amen